The scripture for this morning's sermon is from the Gospel of John, chapter 7. John, chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let me pray, and then I will bring to us the word of God. Our Father, we're so deeply grateful for you. We're grateful that you are the living God. We're grateful that you are the gracious God of the universe, Lord. We're grateful that when Adam and Eve sinned, that you did not ultimately turn your back. You, Father, did pour out your wrath, and you did speak harsh words against what they did, but from the very beginning, you began to pursue us, and you began to show us the way of salvation, and in your good time, you sent your only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. You sent him so that whoever believes in him will have their sins wiped away and their communion with God fully restored, not only in this life, but forevermore. And we're so grateful for the amazingly gracious God that you are, and we pray that you would come now and speak to us in power. We pray that you would come now and not only hear what the Lord has to say about the Holy Spirit, but that we would experience the power of the gospel and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Please, Father, come now and work mightily among us for the glory of your name, for the joy and the life of our own souls, and for the blessing of the nations. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we learned last week, the Jewish Feast of Booths was a time for them of national rejoicing. Five days after the Day of Atonement, the people of Israel would travel to Jerusalem, if at all possible, where they would build tents out of leafy branches in remembrance of the time that their ancestors were delivered from Egypt and then spent 40 years living in the desert. Since the law required every able-bodied male to make this journey, the population of Jerusalem would swell by no less than one million people, and the landscape of Jerusalem would be completely transformed. Every available field, every available yard, and even people's rooftops would be covered with these leafy tents in which people would dwell. And there in those tents, the people would gather day by day for eight full days. And there they would celebrate the former goodness of the Lord to their people. They would uh, give thanks to God for his present provision in their midst because this feast took place at harvest time. So they had just bring in the harvest or brung in the harvest or however you're supposed to say that word, and they would be giving thanks to God for his present provision, and they also saw the Feast of Booths as a prophetic time of looking forward to another exodus and a greater deliverance from the very hand of God. So joyous was the Feast of Booths for the Jews that they referred to it as our season of rejoicing, and in those days it was often said that if you had not experienced the joy of the Feast of Booths, you had never experienced joy at all. And boy, what fun, what amazing times of worship it would have been to be there. Every fall, this feast would begin with a solemn assembly and a day of rest before the Lord. And then for the next seven days, the priests and the people 
would enact a number of rituals, one of which bears great weight upon the second half of John chapter 7. And so I want to explain this ritual to you a little bit, and then we'll get to the text and see what Jesus was doing with it. Early in the morning, the high priest would lead a procession of priests and the people from the temple to the pool of Siloam, which was just a little bit to the south. There, he would dip a golden pitcher into the water. He would fill it up with water, and he would then lead the priests and the people back to the temple complex. When they arrived at the temple, the people were required to stay outside, and so they did. But the priests went in. And when the priests went in, they would take this pitcher of water, and they would add to that a pitcher of wine, and they would process around the altar one time. As they began this sacred procession, the temple choir would begin to sing what the Jews called the great Hallel. Specifically, they would sing out loud Psalms 113 through 118. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Psalm 113. I want to read with you just the first, the words of this first psalm. We won't read all of them, but it's an amazing exercise, maybe sometime later on your own, to just sit down and read Psalms 113 to 118 in one fell swoop and imagine yourself being there, hearing the choir sing these sacred songs as the priests are processing around the altar and the people are waiting outside. They would sing with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength. Praise the Lord. O servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Remember this took place in the morning. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and on the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her joyous, the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. And from there, they would go on to sing with all their hearts Psalm 114, and then Psalm 115, and then Psalm 116. And if you look at Psalm 117, that's more of a chorus. So I'm assuming they sang it a couple times because I tried it out this week and it takes about 20 seconds to sing through Psalm 17. So probably that was a, a sort of chorus that was building up to the crescendo of Psalm 118. When the music for Psalm 118 began, they hadn't started singing yet, but the music began. The people outside the temple would now do something. They would take in their right hand a combination of three different branches and they would lift them up as a wave offering before God. And to them, these three branches signified three phases of their people's time in that desert. And they would wave that before God. In their left hand, they would lift up a fruit offering to the Lord to give him thanks for the things that he had done in that particular harvest season. And together with a great shout, they would say three times with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength, they would say, give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. And part of the reason they said that was because of the nature of the feast that they were at. But another reason they said that is because of the way Psalm 118 begins. Please look with me there at verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron, all the priests in the house of God say, 
His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the God, who are here in Jerusalem, but who are not Jews, who are not priests, but who fear God nonetheless, let them raise up their voices and say, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And from there, that psalm goes on to celebrate the faithfulness of God to the people of Israel. And beloved, it comes to a crescendo with words that point to the Messiah. It comes to a crescendo with promises about a coming king. And several of these verses get quoted in the New Testament to be about Jesus. So just imagine he's standing there at the temple for seven straight days hearing this song sung. They come to the end of Psalm 18 and at least he has a consciousness that these words are about him. Look with me please, beginning at verse 19 and we'll read to the end. Open to me, singular the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous ones shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now this next line is a famous saying, but this line has to do about the, the day of Jesus. This is not a general statement. This is the day that the Lord has made, the day that the Lord himself came to visit the temple at the Feast of Booths. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light, the Lord Jesus Christ, to shine upon us. Bind the, sacral, the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Beloved, it would have been such a glorious thing to see these things and to hear these words. When the choir finished that final song, the high priest would indeed take that sacrifice and he would approach the altar and he would bind the sacrifice of that feast to the altar and he would sacrifice it to God for the forgiveness of sins. And on the west side of the altar, he would take that pitcher of water and he would pour it out as an offering to the Lord. And he would take the pitcher of wine on the, on the eastern side of the altar and he would pour that out as an offering to the Lord. For the Jews, this consciously symbolized for them the provision of God in the desert and now for them day by day, year by year. And the wine symbolized even for the Jews the outpouring of the Holy Spirit who was to come upon all peoples according to the latter half of Joel chapter two. I don't know exactly what they thought about what this outpouring was gonna look like, but from their own writings at this time, we know that even the Jews were expecting a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit and thus the meaning of the water and of the wine. On the seventh day of the feast, they would again enact this ceremony, but it would be altered in one significant way. Namely, the high priest would lead the other priests into the temple, and they would process around the altar seven times. And the choir would sing and sing and sing until they were done processing around that altar seven times. And of course, they did that to remember the entrance of Israel into the promised land and the conquering of Jericho, which happened not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of God. God. 
They did that to remember that God had been faithful to his former promises, that he had said he was gonna deliver them into the, the, into the land of promise, and that he actually did deliver them into the land of promise. And in remembering that, they put their faith in the future and said if God kept his promises, then God will surely keep his promises in the future. On the eighth day of the feast, it was again to be a day of a solemn assembly where everybody gathered as near to the temple as they could get. And it was a Sabbath day of rest before the Lord. And since it was a day of rest, they did not enact this ritual. They did not enact any other rituals. But the high priest would stand and he would give a prayer of thanksgiving to God. He would thank God for his provision in the distant past. He would thank God for his provision of, of the harvest right in their own midst. And he would pray that God would fulfill all of his promises in the future. He would pray that God would provide for all of Israel's future needs and that he would soon, in his time and in his way, pour out his Holy Spirit upon all of his people according to the end of Joel chapter two. John tells us, if you wanna flip now back to John chapter seven, John tells us in John 7, verse 37, that on the last day of the feast, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and he cried out with all the passion that he could muster. He was trying to proclaim something loud enough so that everybody in that temple complex could hear him, if at all possible. And believe me, there would have been a lot of people in that temple complex. It's hard for us to tell if the great day, if the last day, is actually referring to the seventh day of the feast or the eighth day of the feast. Scholars are divided on this matter, and I, I don't think it really matters. What matters is that when the time was just right and his father moved his heart, Jesus stood up and he proclaimed with all of his heart and said this in verse 37 and verse 38. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Beloved, do you see how Jesus was not just randomly saying, come to me and drink? He was not randomly bringing up the issue and the subject of water. Jesus was drawing upon the sacred ceremony of the priests and of the people that they had been celebrating for seven straight days. And do you see how he was taking this powerful pointers to the past and implying that he himself is the fulfillment of these things? Formerly, formerly, the prophet Isaiah had declared, come to me everyone who thirsts and drink the waters. But now Jesus stands up and says, come to me personally. Come to me personally and I will give you living water. I will give you something that satisfies your soul. I am the fulfillment of the signs of this water. I am the fulfiller of your greatest and your deepest needs. And the Lord said, so profound will be my provision for you that if you will come to me and drink, I will not only satisfy your soul, but I will cause living waters, rivers of waters to gush out of your soul for the blessings of other people. I will cause you not only to be a recipient, but a kind of conduit, a kind of source of my work in the world, of my blessing upon the world. I will transform you in your very nature, in your very function, in your very fruitfulness, in the very purpose for which you are living on this earth. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me, Jesus said, to drink. Oh, beloved, what a powerful, powerful thing. The Apostle John, we probably already knew this, but maybe his first readers didn't. The Apostle John makes clear to us that when Jesus was talking about water, 
He was more specifically referring to the Holy Spirit. And he was saying that anybody who believes in Jesus was going to be given a fullness of the Spirit so that they would be satisfied and so that, again, they would become not only recipients but conduits of grace. They would become not only receivers but they would become a kind of source Not that they themselves produce the Holy Spirit, but that they become a touch point, an access point by which other people in the world are touched by the Holy Spirit. Even as the fullness of the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus and remained upon him, so now he promised that the fullness of the Spirit would descend and remain upon whoever put their faith in him, whoever was united to him by faith. He promised to transform us from broken cisterns into rivers of life, and into beacons of light in the world. Now, you'll notice there that Jesus said that this promise came from the scripture, but he didn't mention at all what scripture he's talking about. There's been a lot of debate for literally centuries about what scriptures he might be referring to, but given the overall context, I think Psalm 78, 15 through 16 is probably the best candidate. If you want to turn there real quick, Psalm 78, just want to look at verses 15 through 16. While you're turning, by the way, I'll just quickly apologize to you that I didn't have notes ready for you this morning. Was that I actually had three hours available to me last night that I don't normally have, and with all that extra time, I forgot to do my job. So it is what it is, but we'll turn to Psalm 78, verses 15 through 16. This is Asaph writing, not David. He, that is the Lord, splits rocks in the wilderness. So just to understand, we're talking about Israel's time in the wilderness now. He splits rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and he caused the waters to flow down like rivers. To this, beloved, Jesus added that he would not just cause those rivers to flow down for his people, but please take this in. He would cause these rivers to flow from his people. He himself will be the rock both now and forevermore. We are not the rock. We are just united to the rock by faith. But by faith, his grace is so profound that he would cause the waters that fed his people to now flow not only to us, but actually to flow from us. So incredibly great is the graciousness and the the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever scripture, though, Jesus had in mind, I think that we can agree that his point is clear. If you look at the feast and everything that is happening, Jesus is clearly passionately proclaiming to the people that he was the fulfillment of the ceremony of water and wine, that he was the fulfillment of the great Hallel sung before God and in the hearing of the people, and especially the end of Psalm 118. He was the righteous one who entered in to the house of God, and he was showing the people that he actually is the greater Moses who came to lead in a greater exodus into a greater kingdom for a greater amount of time. In fact, sometime when we get a little farther down in the road with John, I, I might add another sermon in here somewhere because I've been thinking a lot about this. In John chapter one, John compares Jesus and Moses. And he basically says, here's what happened to Moses, but Jesus is so much greater than Moses as, as to not even let there be a comparison. And then one way to read the gospel of John is that there is this constant comparison between Moses and Christ. Jesus gave better bread to the people than Moses did in the desert. Moses, by faith, lifted up his staff. The water was split. Jesus walked on top of the water. 
Moses struck the rock and God caused waters to flow in former days, but now Jesus said, come to me. I actually am the source of water. And I will give you a kind of water that would not just quench your thirst for a day, but it will quench your thirst forever. And it will so much transform you that you will become a conduit of life. He, beloved, is the greater Moses. He is the final one to come. Although Jesus' words were few, those who heard him speak that day were deeply moved by what he said in one way or another. There are at least three reactions that we see in the crowds. Some suggested that he was the great prophet about whom Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 18. I've mentioned this to you a couple of times, but Moses wrote, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. And since the book of Deuteronomy ends by saying that nobody like Moses had yet raised up, the Jewish people continued to look for this prophet to come and they continued to look all the way down to the days of Jesus. They were still looking for the great prophet. Some people, when they heard Christ speak in that day, please understand, they saw more than a charismatic figure. They looked at Jesus, they watched his demeanor, they heard the tone of his voice, they listened to the content of what he said and they said, this man is unusual. He is not just another leader. He is not just another prophet. This man is the prophet. This man is the fulfillment of things that were spoken so long ago. Others looked at him and said, I I don't know about that. We think probably he's the Christ. We think probably he is the Messiah. We think probably he is the one who is to come in the line of David and deliver us from our enemies round about by the power of God and the strength of his own hand. But as they thought this through a little bit more, you'll see there in the text that they, they came upon a problem. They knew that Jesus was from Galilee, and at least some in the crowd probably knew that he was from Nazareth, but the details of that didn't really matter. They knew he was from Galilee. It's hard for us to relate, but they would be able to tell it in his accent, maybe like the way we would hear a southerner speak, and we would just know they're from the south. As soon as they heard Jesus or any Galilean speak, they would know that they're from the north. So even if they didn't have specific knowledge about Jesus, they knew he was from the north, and they also knew that the scripture said the Messiah would come from the line of David and that he would hail from the village of David, in other words, the city of Bethlehem. They did not know about Jesus' early life. They did not know that he was from the tribe of Judah. They did not know he was directly descended from David and that he actually was born in Bethlehem. They did not know what exactly drove him up to Galilee. They didn't understand any of that. They just saw this man that they knew was no normal man. And they had a feeling in their heart, we can't just walk away and not think about this guy. We have to take this guy seriously. He may be the Messiah. He may be the Christ. He may be the great deliverer for whom we have been waiting for such a long time. Still others felt that while Jesus was unusual and charismatic and very persuasive toward the people, that he was not a man of God to whom they should look, but they thought he was a deceiver who should be rejected and who should be reported and who should be punished. They felt that for him to speak the word of God in the temple of God to the people of God without the proper credentials was a high crime that deserved severe punishment. But you'll see there in the text it says that nobody dared lay hands on him. And I think there are two reasons for that. The least important reason is that I think they feared the authorities that were involved in this whole situation, and I think they didn't want to get caught up in plots to kill people because of what it might imply for them. But more importantly, I think they looked at Jesus, and even though they weren't persuaded by him, they were afraid of him. They knew this was a serious man of God. And what if we lay hands upon him and we're wrong? 
Nobody would arrest Jesus, even those who were particularly against Jesus. And beloved, I think as we observe this part of the story, verses 40 through 44, don't throw away any part of Scripture, beloved. There are deep lessons in every single part of Scripture. I think what we see to this day is that when people encounter Jesus Christ in truth, they have strong feelings about him. People who have weak feelings about Jesus have never encountered Jesus. They may have heard words about him, but they've never encountered him. And when people feel strong feelings about Jesus, they feel different kinds of feelings. They have different kinds of reactions. But one thing they don't do is say nothing or do nothing. The tumult that our brothers and sisters are experiencing all over this world right now. Just for example, our brothers and sisters in India are being persecuted very severely right now. There's a strong move among the Hindus to kill or expel all Christians from their country. Beloved, that is just normal Christianity. It's been happening since the day Jesus walked upon this earth. Some love him, bow their life before him. Other people want to rise up and kill those who believe in him. If they can't kill Jesus, they'll kill the people who won't stop talking about Jesus. Some people hear about Christ and maybe they don't want to kill anybody, but even in our own culture, oh, they want to do everything they can to suppress the voice of Christian people. Am I right about that? Right now, the only bastion in the way of the LGBT agenda in the United States is the Christian church. Tell me who else is standing up and saying, this is not right. Tell me who else is standing up and saying, we love you, we care about you, we're not against you as human beings but we are for the marriage of one man and one woman. We are for the design of God in gender. We are for the God who doesn't make mistakes. And when you're born a boy, you're a boy. And when you're born a girl, you're a girl. And it's a beautiful thing. And there's brokenness and there's difficulty and there's challenges. Those things are real. We acknowledge that they're real. We have compassion for those struggles and those feelings. But in the end, God is not wrong. So come into the joy of the God who is wise and knows what he is doing. Tell me, beloved, who else is talking like that in our culture right now? And what kind of divisions are taking place in our families, in our cities, in our schools, in our institutions, in our world right now because of this issue? You mark my words, more and more Christians are going to come under more and more persecution in our very lifetimes and the wheat is going to be separated from the weeds. We're going to see it happen. When Christ comes and graciously, lovingly, boldly proclaims his word, there are different and severe reactions and they are opposite reactions. Beloved, this is normal Christianity. And may God help us to be people who refuse to compromise the truth and who refuse to compromise grace. May we refuse to back off and, and compromise the things that God has revealed, but may we also reject the heart that focuses on the wrong enemy and stops pursuing people with the gospel of God. Our battle is in fact not against flesh and blood but against spiritual powers isn't that right and so as much as we oppose some people's lifestyle we love them and we want them to hear from Jesus we want them to know the gospel now present in the crowd that day was a little subset of people who were actually official officers of the temple who had literally been sent by the Sanhedrin by the ruling authorities to arrest Jesus they went there to do that job they were Levites, and their charge was to carry out the will of the Sanhedrin. Their charge was to do whatever they were told to do. But 
while they had been sent by the authorities and with all the authority they needed, when they heard Jesus' words and when they saw his demeanor, they simply could not bring themselves to do what they had been sent to do. They couldn't do it. And so they went back to their bosses. They went back to the authorities. They went back to the Sanhedrin empty-handed. And the Sanhedrin was neither impressed nor happy about this. And you'll see in verse 45, they just said, why didn't you bring him? I don't think you should hear a kind tone in those words. That would have been a very angry accusation. The Sanhedrin was certain that their instructions were clear and they expected their instructions to be followed. They expected their commands to be obeyed. So now these men had come back and they apparently had not obeyed and they were incensed. They lashed out in anger. What is wrong with you people? We gave you clear commands. Where is the man for whom we sent you? The officers in verse 46 just said something very simple. They said, no one has ever spoken like this man before. So I, I, put, I tried to put myself in their shoes the last few days and just think about what that might have meant. And I think that they're just saying no one has ever spoke the word of God with such clarity, but also with such force. You know what I mean? Like that intangible something that you can't really describe, but you cannot really deny. No one had ever spoken the word of God with such sincerity and with such passion. No one had ever articulated the things of God with such impenetrable logic and with such white-hot affection at the same time. And as these officers watched Jesus, as they considered the things he had to say and the things they saw him do, they just could not bring themselves to arrest him. He had arrested their attention, you see? And they could not arrest him. Therefore, these men bravely, I think, chose to face the wrath of the Sanhedrin for not arresting Jesus rather than to face the wrath of God for arresting Jesus. I don't know who these guys were, but I praise God for their integrity. The Pharisees, however, were not moved at all. In fact, they were all the more enraged. They asked the officers in verse 47, so have you also been deceived? And you'll see there that they argued, none of the authorities have believed in this guy. None of the Pharisees, the strictest sect among our people, the people who seem to know the scripture best and care about it most, none of them have believed in him. Implication, who do you think you are to believe in this guy? You are rejecting your shepherds. You are not following your leaders. None of us have believed. Now, we know that that actually wasn't true. There were people in their own number who had either believed in Jesus or they were openly in their hearts considering Jesus, but they wouldn't say anything about it out loud because they were scared of their own colleagues. They were scared that their own kind would round them up, imprison them, and maybe even kill them. So they kept quiet. But the main leaders of the Pharisees were wrong. There were people in their own midst that had believed in Jesus Christ. But they were such evil glory seekers that their own people didn't feel free to speak their minds. Be that as it may, the point that the Sanhedrin was making was pretty clear. Since the most pious, educated, and powerful people in Israel have not believed in Jesus, you should not believe in him either. You should not be swept away by some crowd of people who don't know the word of God and who do not know the ways of God and who cannot discern the will of God in any given situation. It is a well-known fact among those who are specialists in this time era that the leaders of Israel in this day thought very little of the people, they would have said, that were beneath them. 
They made a distinction between the elders of Israel and the common people, and believe me, the term the common people was not a compliment. And by the common people, they meant everybody who was not of their parties, who was not a priest, who was not a Pharisee, who was not a ruler. One of the most liberal among them, Rabbi Hillel, he even said that there's not one single common person in Israel who is pious. That means who is holy. That implies who has the ability to search the scriptures and understand the will of God and walk in the way of God. This guy was so arrogant, he thought that not one of several million people truly had a heart for God. Oh, oh, what arrogance belonged to them. So they're looking at their officers and saying, really? You're gonna follow a pack of fools rather than following us? The amazing shepherds of Israel. Little humble pie would have done these people good. Not only did they imply that they were fools, but they also called them accursed. And I want you to understand that when they used that word accursed, that was not a random word. That was actually a legal term that they pronounced upon the people. The word in Greek for accursed means this, quote, to be under divine judgment by the authoritative declaration of others. Please understand, this was an official term being used by the authorities to belittle the crowd and frighten their officers. These people were pronouncing judgment on the crowd and not so subtly suggesting that if their authors followed the crowd, they would come under the same condemnation. They were not so subtly saying, you either arrest that man or we're going to arrest you. You either follow us or you embrace the fate of the crowd. Now, interestingly, at this point, Nicodemus comes back into the picture. He appears three times in the Gospel of John. This is number two. We don't know if Nicodemus had yet fully put his faith in Christ, but we can assume at the very least from the conversation in John 3 that in his heart he was considering the claims of Christ. He was closely watching the actions of Christ. Be that as it may, please notice that Nicodemus's point here is not a personal point or a theological point. His point is a procedural point. Okay, we're in an official type of court setting here. This is not a random conversation in the field. This is a, like a conversation in the, in the House and the Senate chambers, if you will, where people with power are making decisions about how to exercise their power against somebody they want to get. And Nicodemus just says something simple. Listen, don't we at least hear somebody out before we condemn them? Doesn't the law itself that was revealed by God say that we should first find out what a guy is saying and at least find out what a guy is doing before we pronounce judgment upon them? You may remember from last week, in verse 24, chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus himself had said to some of these very people, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgments. Nicodemus was just saying the same thing. Please understand, this is a procedural point, not a personal or a theological point. But his colleagues were in no mood to hear an argument like this, and so they attacked him. Verse 52, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Beloved, believe me, the first part of that statement was an insult. In their day, it was no pleasure. It was no high thing to be from Galilee. It was like being called a hick. Are you some kind of hick from the hills? Is that what you are? They knew exactly who Nicodemus was. You don't come into that house of authority without being thoroughly vetted and thoroughly tested and thoroughly known. They knew exactly who he was. They were insulting him. Are you one of them too, Nicodemus? Are you out for him? Are you trying to defend people who are like you? And then they challenged him. And basically they said, all right, big shot, Nicodemus, why don't you get out your Bible and you search it from cover to cover 
And you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And therefore, you will see that this man cannot be a prophet. He cannot be the prophet. He cannot be the Christ. He cannot be any specific or significant man of God. This man is a deceiver. And Nicodemus, you ought to know that. It saddens me a little bit that Nicodemus was silenced by this, but it seems that he was. But even from a procedural point of view, his colleagues had absolutely no desire to listen to him at all. They had no desire to do the right thing. And Jesus told us last week why. The reason is they're after their own glory. And the only way to get glory is to protect your own authority. Isn't that right? The final words that they said to Nicodemus, though, are very revealing because I'll tell you what they show us. They show us that as much as these guys boasted in themselves, they did not know their Bibles very well. And I don't have the time to go into it today, but someday I'm hoping maybe God will make a space in one of my messages to explain to you how, how they had shifted from a focus right on the words of God to where they actually, what they would do is study the commentary of their rabbis on the word of God. That's what they studied. And in this way, they got away from the source, you see. And this is what they knew. And slowly but surely, even the so-called expert shepherds of Israel knew the word of God less and less and less. They did not know, or they had not remembered that in former days, God actually rose up quite a few prophets from the land of Galilee. People like Amos, people like Nahum, people like Hosea, even Elijah and Elisha, the great prophets, came from the north, not from the south. Now, they were not talking about the past here. I'll grant you that. But I'm trying to say that their perception of the people in the north was off. And if they knew the scripture, they would have known that. And then guess what else they missed? A little passage in Isaiah chapter 9. Please turn there with me. Isaiah chapter 9. I want to read for you verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to skip and read verses 6 and 7. If they would have taken the time to search their own scripture, they would have found out a little something about Galilee. And maybe they would have at least opened their hearts to considering the claims of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Those are tribes of Israel that were located in the north, that, that basically were formerly in the area of Galilee, but it was called something different. So there was a time where there was contempt upon these lands. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen, notice singular, a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Look down at verse six. What is he talking about? For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and this son is slightly impressive. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will be God in the flesh, beloved. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of who? He's going to come from Galilee, but on the throne of who? On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal, the passion, the desires, the capabilities of the Lord will do this. Beloved, 
Their point of view about Jesus in Galilee was absurd because they had come to value their own tradition over valuing the word of God itself. And because of that, they forgot about the word of God. If they had just had hearts to read the word and to know the word, they would have had eyes to see Jesus. I remember uh, Joel talking with you a few weeks ago about how we probably also would have shared, shared some of the Pharisees' difficulties with Jesus. He came in making some pretty significant claims. But then we both agreed, yeah, but at the same time, the Old Testament was very clear about many aspects of Christ. And if these guys would have had a heart to truly know the word of God, they would have been able to see who Jesus was. Last week, he said to them, he said, if you had a heart to do God's will, you would know who I am. But the truth is, you want your glory more than God's will. That's why you're blind to me. And what I'm trying to help us see today, beloved, is just how blind these guys were. Their own experts forgot Isaiah 9. How could you forget Isaiah 9? Look at the power of that prophecy. Tell me, please, how can you forget it? I'll tell you exactly how you can forget it. One small step away from the scripture at a time. That's how. Beware, beloved. The solution is utterly simple. Open up your Bible and trust your God, and you'll be in a very safe place. Nicodemus offered no rebuttal to all of this, though. And it seems that the conversation ended in a stalemate because at least for now, no further actions were taken. And yet the stage was now set for plots that would rain down upon Jesus like a flood. Plots that would end his earthly life at least for a short time, but that also would stunningly pave the path toward forgiveness for everybody who would believe in him, including the very people who were against him at the time. By their hand, by their evil plots, Jesus would make the once for all sacrifice for sin and he would give the Holy Spirit without measure to everybody who believes in him, satisfying their souls and transforming them from broken cisterns into rivers of living water. Oh, what treachery and what grace is contained in the end of John chapter seven. On that day, Jesus spoke these words to a crowd of unbelievers, people who had not yet put their faith in him, but he did so in the hearing of his disciples who were believers. And today, if you're here today and you're not at a place in your life where you believe in Jesus, first of all, we're super glad that you're here. We're, we're, we are here for you too, and we're glad that you're here. But I want you to know that even as Jesus was speaking to those people back then, he's here speaking to you right now. And he is saying to you right now, come to me and drink. I will give you water that will satisfy your soul. I will give you water that will transform your life. I will give you water that will make you a stream of blessing to other people. Sometimes when people experience this new life in Christ, they have strong feelings and and powerful experiences. Other times, the Lord comes into their life sort of like a whisper. That's not, it doesn't feel super powerful, but I want to tell you something. Your feeling or your experience of Christ is not the heart of what Christ is about. What he said is, despite your feelings and all of that stuff, you come to me and you drink of me, you will be satisfied and I will transform your life. That is an open invitation to you today. And in just a minute, I'm gonna invite you to take action upon that if it's something that God is stirring in your heart. On that day, Jesus spoke these words to unbelievers, but now I wanna emphasize, he spoke these words in the hearing of his disciples because I believe that he was still in part speaking to his disciples and therefore he's speaking to people just like us. He's speaking to believers who had yet to progress to the extent that he called for them to progress. In fact, when he said, come and drink, 
he used two words in the Greek language, both of which are in the, the ever-present tense. So the way that we should hear this is come to me and come to me and come to me and come to me and drink of me and drink of me and drink of me and drink of me. And when you make me your source of life, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, you will be satisfied. And when you feel thirsty and dissatisfied in your life, you'll know what the solution is. You have at least for a time ceased to drink. Jesus was not asking for a one-time response to a one-time message. He was saying, come now and begin a way of life that endures not just on the earth but forever. Come and come and come and drink and drink and drink of Jesus Christ and you will be satisfied. Now, I pondered this a lot over the last couple of weeks. And about four or five days ago, I just admitted to the Lord that even though I've been walking with him for over 30 years now, there's many days where I don't feel satisfied. And there's probably many more days that I don't exactly feel like rivers of living water are gushing out of my life. Do you? Do you always feel like that? And so I just brought this before the Lord because I believe what he says in his word, but I, need, I needed his help to, to believe it in some you know, unreal terms. And what he helped me to see was this, that in his words was both a statement of fact and a promise. And the bottom line is that his statement of fact is that if you come to him, he will satisfy your greatest, deepest needs, and he'll satisfy them forever. And it doesn't frankly matter what I feel about it on any particular day. When I came to Jesus on October 26th of 1986, he forever took my name out of the devil's family and put my name into his family, and there's no going back. My greatest needs are satisfied. Even if I don't feel satisfied, they are satisfied. And he said, nothing, oh, nothing will cause me to eject you from my family. You're in, and you're in forever. Beloved, this is a statement of fact that we have to receive by faith. If you come to Christ and drink of him, your greatest needs are met forever. Now, what about the rivers of living water? He also helped me to see that that's a promise. He helped me to see that I need to take that I need to take him at his word and trust that when he is living in me and when he is working in me, he will be blessing others through me. I kind of got this picture in my mind that the riverbed doesn't have to be in perfect condition in order to be a good conduit for the water, right? But as the water of the Holy Spirit flows through this conduit of my life, it's changing me, it's transforming me, it's making me more and more into a riverbed that's pleasing to the Lord my God. But even while I'm in process, he's using me to bless other people's lives. The other day, I woke up just on the wrong side of the bed, grumpy for no particular reason at no particular person. And I realized that after I drove away from the early morning prayer meeting where we did a bunch of spiritual stuff, now I'm driving away to my next appointment and I realize I'm just getting irritated by drivers around me, I'm getting irritated all, all these little things and I thought to myself, you probably should get as far away from people today as possible. I had to go to Cub to do a few things and I walked in there and I had been disciplining my mind to focus on Jesus and not my mood. I've been disciplining my mind to think about Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 rather than myself. And I walked into Cub and I had to do a kind of complicated transaction. The girl got a little flustered and she, it wasn't going all that well. And God just gave me this incredible spirit of peace and patience and I just spoke some kind words to her. She actually got tears in her eyes and she said, man, so many people are not kind like this. You made my day. I didn't think that much about it. I walked out of Cub and I'm on my way to a car, my car and I realized, oh my Lord, of all days, today, God used me to make somebody else's day. I shouldn't have made anybody's day today. 
Today should have been the day when I, when I offended somebody and then they show up at church on Sunday and say, there's that guy. <laughs> Beloved, that's grace. That's rivers of living water flowing out of a life even when you're not worthy. It is a promise to us that's real. And every time you intercede for others, every time you show mercy to others, every time you bless others or give to others or help others, rivers are flowing, beloved. Rivers are flowing. We take it as a promise. We take Jesus at his word. He is not a liar. He is not a liar. Everybody who comes to him will be satisfied and everybody who walks with him will be a conduit of the rivers of the Holy Spirit flooding into the world in ways visible and in ways invisible. Now, in honor of God's word today, in honor of Jesus' call upon us today, I set up two tables at the end of either aisle. And what I would like to do is that after I pray, I want to invite you that if you want to take action, if you want to come and drink of Jesus, I want to invite you just to take a symbolic action, walk up the aisle, pour a cup of water, and drink it as a symbol of the fact that you're hungry, you're thirsty, you're desirous of Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're an unbeliever and you're just now believing in Jesus Christ, I'm going to tell you, you are welcome to come here. If you want to come and drink of Jesus, you come and drink of Jesus. If you're a believer here today and you do have the desire to drink of Jesus, but you frankly don't want to get out of your chair and come drink this water, that's between you and God. Feel no pressure at all. But for those of you who want to take some physical act to display a spiritual reality, I want to invite you with me to come up and drink of the water. Just pour out of the pitcher and drink and then take your seats. During that time, we'll sing Keith Green's song, Rushing Wind, and I pray that God will bless us in this time. Let me pray, and then we'll sing and drink. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for being willing to go down to the Feast of Booths at that time, six months before your crucifixion, because it was a very dangerous time for you. I thank you for being willing to obey the will of your Father rather than protecting the needs of your flesh. And I thank you that when the moment was exactly right, you heard the whispers of your Father and you stood up and you shouted out to everybody, whoever is thirsty, let him come to me to drink. Thank you so much, Lord. And I thank you that those ever-present words are living for us right now. And I pray that we would hear them, Lord. I pray that wherever we are in our journey with you, that we would hear them. And I pray that we would long to come to you. I pray that we would long to drink of you. And I pray that you would satisfy us and that you would use us. And I thank you for what you'll do. Father, please use this ceremony, this symbolism of your invitation now, powerfully in our lives. And I thank you, Father, by faith for what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen.